Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. And we have looked over the last several weeks at the importance of every believer embracing his and her role as full-time ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And these last couple weeks, we looked at those who uh, abandoned the faith and at those who, even under extraordinary circumstances, kept the faith. And we want to, of course, be numbered among those who keep the faith, right? We've spoken at least once, at least on the oblique, of the glorious entrance into heaven of those who keep the faith, those who finish their course as it was planned for them. And we talked uh, specifically uh, along that line about the judgments, uh, the rewards that will be based on the gifts and talents and particular callings. Remember, we are not judged uh, based on how I measured up to you or how you measured up to Billy Graham or anything like that. What are we being judged against? Here's what I equipped you to do. Here's what I called you to do. How well did you do those things? What we haven't spoken much about is the destiny of those who refuse Christ. What happens to those who deny Christ? Hey, it's Thanksgiving week. I thought there was no better time to talk about hell. (laughs) You know, there's an attractive doctrine called universal reconciliation, and there's other names for it. But it essentially goes like this. Look, God is love, he is all-powerful, he is all-loving, and eternal punishment is inconsistent with a God who is love. Now, there's more to it than that. But how many of you have heard something like this? We can't, we can't possibly believe that to, to, to say that people will be eternally punished, number one, how can a loving God do that to anybody forever? And two, doesn't that make God a failure, that he failed to save everyone he tried to save, all right? Uh, And then we start thinking about what is this eternal punishment? Is it literal fire? Is the suffering, is the punishment a literal constant burning, a conscious torment? Well, before I answer that, let me remind you of uh, at least what I'm convinced about heaven. I don't want to go off on a rant here. And I know we've talked about this at some point in the last year or so. But when we read about heaven and we read the gates of pearl and the streets of gold and the buildings made of jewels, and we see words like mansion, I always ask, or have asked for years, what exactly is my life in heaven going to be like? Am I going to live in a room in one giant mansion? Am I going to have my own mansion? Uh, does mansion even mean mansion? And it doesn't. <laughs> the, 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 the most famous place where he talks about in my father's house are many mansions. That word simply means dwelling place. Uh, and you, I'm sure, well, I can't say I'm sure, I have, and I assume many of you have, heard testimonies of people who not only saw heaven, but saw their house in heaven. They got a vision or a dream or experience where they saw this is what heaven is going to be like, uh, at least for me. And those can be exciting, I guess, but they can be a little misleading. And the bottom line is this. What does heaven really look like? It doesn't matter. 
whatever it is like, we are going to love it. And it's not going to be one of those, well, I love it, but I'd love it more if it looked like what I pictured when I was on earth. It will be, oh, I could have never imagined anything this great. But here's what's great about it. Ready? We are with Jesus. We are with the God who created us. That is what heaven is. And we can get, as we grow in our intimacy with Christ here on earth, I believe it's possible to get more and more excited about being in heaven and being with him manifestly. But we can only get a taste of that here. It's enough for me right now to know that he is my Lord, he's my Savior, he's my loving Father. I thank God for my wife. Hey, Beth, stand up a second. Come here. This is my wife, Beth. How many of you have met her? She was, she was out of town on her birthday. Uh, she went to Texas with a friend, but she turned 60 while she was out of town. Has 60 ever looked better? <laughs> and I didn't get her specific permission to tell you her, her age, I just realized, but <laughs> she's remarkably well-preserved, and, and, and I have not aged as gracefully, and many people for years, well, have I, how much older are you than Beth? She's the cradle robber, not me. Okay, so anyway, uh, happy birthday, baby. I just wanted to have everybody wish you a happy birthday. I, uh, I love my wife, and I've, I find her an easy person to love. And I thank God for that, because I know marriage can be a lot of work. Marriage can be a struggle, and I'm not saying ours has been nothing but sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows, but I'm still extraordinarily grateful to God for my wife, and when she's gone, when she was in Texas, I missed her. But she was still my wife. It wasn't like, oh, I don't have a wife for a week. No, she's still my wife. And, but it was so exciting to have her back. And that's just the tiniest taste of what it's going to be like when we are physically ushered into the presence of the God that we already love, the God that we're already committed to. He's my Savior. He's my Father. But it's nothing like it's going to be when we are all physically together. That's what heaven is. Now, does that mean there aren't certain living arrangements? No, there are, I'm sure. What if it's a planet instead of a house? I heard somebody actually preach that linguistically. I'm like, well, that'd be kind of cool. Sounds a little Mormon to me, you know. Everybody gets their own planet. But uh, anyway, uh, all that to say, the actual physical structure of heaven, the material that it's made of, can't... That, You'd have a hard time convincing me that that really matters when it's all about being with God. Likewise, with hell. Does it really matter if it's fire or darkness or pain or any of the other descriptors uh, that are used? What if it's even destruction? That's another uh, uh, theory is that uh, annihilation is ultimately what, makes, what, what uh, awaits the unbeliever. We were created for eternal relationship with and fellowship with Jehovah, creator of the universe, creator of you, creator of me. So it's not about, I'll, I'll get around to making this point here in just, I'm going to read you a scripture first, but it's not about whether we burn, consciously suffer, 
suffer annihilation or whatever. It's about this. Let me read a couple of scriptures for you first. In Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19, Jesus said, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores, including a dog named Moreover, as we know from the old King James, right? That the, the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him into Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he, was, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Now please understand Two things. One is very many uh, teachers and writers believe, and I count myself among them, that this is not a parable. I believe Jesus is telling a real episode here. In the parables, he doesn't give his characters names. In the parables, it almost always says, not always, but almost always says, and Jesus told them this parable, or the kingdom of heaven is like unto. This is, there was a man. There was a wealthy man, and there was also this guy named Lazarus. So, I believe he's talking about something that really happened. Ultimately, I guess it probably doesn't matter. Jesus is making a point. I will say, though, that the message that he's getting across here is not primarily this, because if you, if you focus too much on one, one paragraph of this, it's like, well, if you enjoy this life, you'll go to hell. And if you suffer in this life, you'll go to heaven. That's clearly not the message of the gospel. The main message is that the gulf is fixed. That once you are where you wind up after you die, you don't get to make a decision after that. If you're separated, you're separated. If you're with him, you're with him. And yes, there, it does point out the selfishness and the hardness of the rich man. Uh, his sin was not his wealth, but his refusal to care for the poor, the poor that he even apparently knew. He looked over there and he didn't say, hey, send that dude over here. He says, oh, that's Lazarus. I recognize him. How do you recognize him? Because he sat there and rotted at your house, outside the gate of your house day after day, and you ignored him and let him die. Look now at uh, Luke 13, uh, beginning in verse 24, right at the tail end of uh, 23, it says, and he said to them, in verse 24, strive to enter through the narrow gate, for many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us, and he will answer and say to you, I do not know you, where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, 
you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. Now the weeping and gnashing of teeth here is not weeping and gnashing because of the pain of the lake of fire. It's weeping and gnashing of teeth because they had been shut out of the, God, uh, the kingdom of God because it was too late for them to get in, too late to receive what they, what they needed all along. There's a, you know, there's, I, it's almost impossible to ignore the picture of the ark being lifted by the waters of the flood and people then come knock, knock. Hey, okay, we believe you now. <laughs> Let us in. No, the door's been sealed. It's shut. It's too late. Now, Again, the importance is to make a decision for Christ now. But for the sake of time, let me just mention a few of the terms the New Testament uses when it talks about the final destiny of the unrighteous. There are phrases and words like hell, fiery hell, the lake of fire, eternal fire, outer darkness, second death. Phrases like the fire is not quenched, they are tormented day and night. It goes on and on and on. There are many, many uh, instances from Jesus, from the other writers of the New Testament, or from the writers of the New Testament. Now, what some people want to talk about, again, kind of going back to the beginning, is how can a God who is all good and all loving sentence anyone to eternal torment? Even if not everybody is saved, how can he punish them forever? Even if they were evil, because they, they could only be evil for 120 years max. And you're going to torture him forever for that? I'm going to give you an answer to that as we near the altar call. But what I want you to focus on is that, yes, there is a hell. There is a destiny for the, un, for the righteous, and it's glorious. And there's a destiny for the wicked, and it is unthinkably horrible. But here's an interesting passage. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 6, it says, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with an everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. This grabs me because of one particular line. And that was it, shut out from the presence of the Lord. And again, there are some who say that ultimately the destiny of the wicked is annihilation. And there are verses that they can kind of use to support it, but I don't think it's worth arguing about because this is the, this is the thing. At some point, everybody will see how good God is. All will know something about what makes heaven so desirable. And just as God himself is the ultimate reward for the believer, the ultimate punishment for the unbeliever is eternal separation from him. And every time I think about this concept, I think about something Jeff Canfield shared with a number of people many years ago. And Jeff, you can just wave your hands if I'm getting it horribly wrong or if I just, I know it's your story to tell and I'll probably massacre it somewhat, but it has stuck with me so so much over the years about a vision or a dream that he experienced 
uh, where he saw himself nearing the presence of God. What you were made to know was the presence of God. I don't think you saw a face. It was more of a, whether it was a light or just a presence, but he said, the closer I got to him, I was floating toward him, moving toward him, and the closer I got, the more overwhelmingly wonderful was the experience. Again, it wasn't like I'm flying over heaven and seeing a castle and Jesus is telling me I'm going to live in a castle. It's just about getting near the presence of God and just bliss, bliss, and just and, and nearing him, nearing him, and just he's about to touch this presence, he is pulled instantly away, and God is shrinking. He says, and, and, and uh, it was the most terrifying, awful experience to be this is wonderful, and then being sucked out of that presence was the most terrifying thing. Did I get it kind of right? Like you're going to shake your head and say, no, it's totally wrong. But. Okay, never mind, Jeff. That was my vision, and that's exactly how I saw it. The point being, it, the horrifying thing was not, I'm landing in fire, as it's, I'm losing the most wonderful thing I could I ever, even more than I could have ever imagined. Listen, I have had people talk about, oh, I had the worst dream last night. When I have a nightmare, I am so happy to wake up and discover it was a nightmare. You know, you know what I mean? Have you ever had a wonderful dream? Something really cool is happening, and then you wake up from that? I mean, I guess you could be positive and say, well, that was a pleasant way to sleep. But no, I'm like, oh, no, that's not real. I can't fly. I don't have $500 million. And I really thought I did. You know, I'd rather wake up from a bad dream than a good dream. But this is nothing like that. This is this, this image, this image that I've always had. Just, oh, God, you're more wonderful than I even knew. And then, no. And he said, God spoke to him and said, that's what awaits the unbeliever. They are going to know how wonderful God is. They are going to experience a moment of, oh, this could have all been mine, and then they are going to be shut out from his presence forever. That's hell, no matter what else hell is. Do you understand? Now, I don't want to diminish the references to the lake of fire and everything else. I think God wants us to know how horrible it is because some people would say, eh, if I can just live my life here, doing anything I want to do, and all I suffer is annihilation, it's not like I'm going to know better, but they will know better. Because they're going to see the God that banishes them from his presence, even if it's into annihilation, and I don't believe it is. I don't think there's a, enough you can hang your hat on. It can be difficult to make people understand right now how wonderful God is, but you know who can make them understand how wonderful God is? God. Which is why prayer always has to be central to our evangelism model. We need to be understanding constantly that only God can reveal himself to somebody. We can only do so much. And I want to move on because we want to have time to get home, enjoy some of the day, and get some rest, and come back tonight, right? You guys are coming, right? All right. All right. Let me get to my main point. When people question God's goodness by accusing him of applying a punishment that isn't commensurate with the crime, so to speak, I believe they misunderstand. It's like people have this crazy idea that we, as a human race, we're just living along, living life happily, if, if stupidly, 
and God just showed up on the scene and says, hey, start worshiping me or I'll burn you. I'll burn you forever. So what kind of God would do that? What kind of good God would do that? But you, you know that's not how it is. He made it all. And he made us, and he made it all, and us, for himself. But when Adam fell, when he sinned, he dragged the whole human race down with him. We are infected with sin, and we need a cure. We are already doomed. We are headed for destruction. All like sheep have gone astray, and unless the shepherd himself enters into the dangerous, deadly place that we have uh, wandered into, then we're lost forever. Salvation comes when we realize the danger. We realize that the pool that we're swimming in and enjoying has now become a river and now become a torrent and is heading for the falls. That the fire we are warming ourselves by is beginning to burn out of control and will consume us. And God, through Christ, pulls us out of that and he does it by sacrificing himself in the process. Let's take that illustration just a little bit further. You're in an actual river. You're swimming, and then you realize you're being swept along by a current that you can't get out of. You realize that you're in a position that you are either going to drown or you're going to be crushed on the rocks. You cannot save yourself. And then a rescue diver, a rescue swimmer, dives in, comes to you. He's holding a... a, life ring and he stretches it out to you you grab it he pulls you swims you to the shore heaves you up safely onto the riverbank and then goes over the falls himself he's dead and you know it he's dead because of you and you know it and you wander around for a couple of days in a daze you're thankful to be alive cut, you're wet, you're hungry, you're tired, but when this guy shows up, what do you say? Oh man, I'm tired, I'm hungry, I'm cold. Is that what you're going to say? Or are you going to say, thank you, you were going to throw yourself at this guy, thank you for saving my life. Throw yourself at his feet. Thank you for saving me. Those who die the second death, those who go to eternal destruction are those who fight off the rescue swimmer, who refuse uh, and ignore his heroic efforts to save them and insist that they are in no danger or capable of saving themselves. They are already headed for destruction. They're the ones that jumped in. They're the ones refusing rescue. It's not God doing it to them. The really good news is that once we are rescued, Thankful as we are for being rescued, the rescuer has even better things for us. He says, you're alive. Now let's get you cleaned up. Let's get some new clothes on you. Let's get you fed. Let's get you healthy. It's no accident, by the way, that I was here. I wasn't just strolling. I was out looking for you. I rescued you for a reason. I've got work for you to do. I'm going to take you back and introduce you to a company of people who have been rescued just like you. And you're going to work together, and we've got a lot more people to save. The work is going to be hard, but when it's all over, uh, just wait and see. And if we're not careful, 
will start looking too hard at all the good things that come with being among the company of the rescued, the saved. And we start thinking that's what it's all about. Glad we sang that song this morning. It's all about you. And we say, thank you for healing me. Thank you for prospering me. And maybe we forget about this. Thank you for saving me. Praise and worship team, you can be coming up here. You know, the fear, let me just, I guess I'll say this first. It is Thanksgiving week, and we do have a lot to be thankful for. I'm not saying don't thank him for healing, don't thank him for the turkey, don't thank him for, for all of the things that you're, that, that you're conscious of, the good things that he's filled your life with. Absolutely thank him for those things. But none of those would mean a thing if he hadn't saved us. Thank him for your salvation. He did that, not you, right? You can stand up with me as I finish up here. This fear, the threat of eternal judgment, is a scriptural one. And Jesus, like I said, Jesus himself, along with the writers of the New Testament, make frequent references to it, frequent references to it. I know now I know that the greatest thing about being a Christian is that I will spend eternity with him. I look forward to being with the one who saved me and being in his kingdom, basking in his love, his presence, not cut off from his glory and his might. But I got to tell you, the day that I received that salvation, when I received Jesus Christ, what I rejoiced in that day, that night rather, was that I was no longer headed for hell. The fear that I had wrestled with for years disappeared that night. God had more for me. But that night, it was enough for me to be saved from hell. Now, because of my background, and again, I was only 12-ish. But because of my background, because of my mom, because of Sunday school, because of church, I knew there was a God and a devil and a heaven and a hell. And I knew just enough to wonder, how do I know I'm going to heaven? Because, and, and honestly, my concern was not, I think heaven's going to be wonderful and I want to be with Jesus. It's, if it's heaven or hell, I know I don't want hell. What about you? Thoughts of hell? Questions about your eternal destiny bother you ever? Jesus is the one who spoke more about hell than probably anybody else. You say, well, people shouldn't be saved by that fire and brimstone, brimstone stuff. It's the love of God. And it is. But they all work together. It's because he loves us that he tells us about those things. He can use every little bit of it to push us toward a decision for him. And you can call it manipulative, but once you see what the results are, you're like, I'll gladly be manipulated. You manipulated me right into what I want and what I need. But he won't make the decision for you. I am trying to scare you out of hell. If that's what it takes to get you into heaven. 
We all grow. Oh, if I could imagine. I couldn't, not at that age. And nobody can when they first come to Christ. They're not going to get the whole picture of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to walk with Jesus. But once we get to a certain point, we look back and say, wow, I came to Christ on that much? Yeah, you did. People could say, well, what you, because my prayer probably went something like this, because this is what I was talking Just ask Jesus into your heart. Ask him to save you. And he will. That's pretty much what I said. I want to be born again because I'd heard that phrase. Please come into my heart. Please save me. I love you. Don't let me go to hell. That was pretty much it. Now, there wasn't a whole lot about lordship in that prayer. There wasn't anything about uh, sacrifice and submission and discipleship. But I know that I know that I know that that's the day that Jesus became my Lord and Savior. That's the day I was saved. Now, we had a long way to go. And it's the same, just like with Jesus, you know. He chose his disciples, they walked with him, and then time here and a time there, it's like, sit down, let's count the cost. Who's going on with me? There are other decisions to make along the way, but I became a born-again child of God on that day, and I did it to get out of hell. Does anybody need to make that decision today? You know, all altar calls used to go like this. Everybody, bow your head and close your eyes. And if you need saved, slip your hand up. I rarely do it that way. Because I want you to understand this is life or death. This is heaven or hell we are talking about. And what would you do? How much would you embarrass yourself? How much would you uh, allow? What would you, what would you risk? To save your child, to save yourself from a fire, from a drowning? And we're talking about eternal destiny here. And all I'm asking you to do is raise your hand with everybody's eyes open, and I'll have you come down here, and I'm going to pray with you in front of all these people. Because part of, your, uh, part of the requirement is you need to make a public confession of Christ. Now, practically, everybody in here has done something like that. So I'm not asking much. And I know, practically everybody in here I know is saved. But if you're not, you are important enough to keep this service going on for another minute, minute and a half, two minutes. I'm going to pray that at the end of my prayer, you need to be saved. You come up here. You can come up during the prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the promise of our eternal destiny with you. And thank you for warning us about hell. Thank you for not hiding that truth from us. We thank you, Lord, that hell wasn't created for us, the lake of fire wasn't created for us, and that we've been rescued. But I pray now for the person or persons in here today, anyone within the sound of my voice who does not know you yet as Savior, who has not reached out and accepted the rescue that you so generously provide through the cross of Christ, that you would convict them of sin and their need for a Savior, that you would grant them the wisdom, the boldness, and the humility to accept the only salvation that is available, the salvation you offer through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That you would move on them, speak to them as only you can now, so that they might come to salvation in Jesus' name. Amen. Is there anybody who wants to make that decision this morning? All right, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Is there anybody, I'm just going to pray this for us too, and then I'm going to sit down as we sing. Uh, or, or you can come up if, if you want to 
pray about this. Uh, two quick invitations. One is this. Scott, I know I prayed a prayer like that. I was a young person too, and I meant it at the time. And I've never seriously doubted I lost my salvation, but, but maybe you've forgotten that there are daily people slipping into that, slipping into hell, people who are dying. And it brings us full circle back to what we started talking about weeks ago, which is that you are a minister, you are a minister, you are a minister. It really is up to us to share the gospel with those people. If you were rescued, you are now part of the rescue squad. And maybe you need to rededicate yourself to that. Like, hey, you know what? I haven't appreciated what went into my rescue, and I need to work harder at being a rescuer. I'm going I'm to apply myself to get more training so that I can be more effective. If you'd like to come up, you can kneel here. I can pray with you as you uh, recommit with a sense of urgency to do the ministry he's called you to do. If you've never been baptized in the Holy Spirit, you are missing you are missing the power that you need to do everything. I'm not saying you can never lead a person to Christ. I'm not saying you can never serve him. I'm certainly not saying you're not going to heaven. You are if you're born again. But Jesus himself said, don't go out and do the things I told you to do until you've received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Something important about that. The Holy Spirit himself, God the Holy Spirit, will indwell you and empower you and manifest his gifts in your life if you will receive him. So I'm going to be standing here as we sing, and you come up and let me pray with you for any one of those things. Amen? Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.